Brilliant. All right, uh, Psalm 97 uh, is on page 426. That's page 426. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All who worship idols are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil. For he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 18, that can be found on page 831. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Thanks, Trina. Let me add my welcome. It's great you're able to join us uh, tonight, the first Sunday of the year. You managed to make it. Well done. You managed to make it ahead of the breaking storm as well. The, the cool change has arrived at last. So hopefully we'll be refreshed. A little bit of breeze will come in and we'll be able to 
So stay alert and awake as we look at the Word of God. Uh, if we've not met before, my name is Mark, and I do hope we have the opportunity to say hello to one another uh, a little later on. Psalm 97, uh, the psalm Nick read for us, and conveniently we have a little bit of thunder roll in the background, is where we'll be looking at uh, tonight. I encourage you to have that open. Uh, but how about we pray that God might speak to us clearly this evening. Lord and God, we uh, thank you that you are a good and gracious God and you and your mercy send both the heat and the refreshing rain. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, the way in which you care for us and the way in which you see uh, without your word we are dead and so you speak. And Father, we pray that tonight we would listen stir your spirit in uh, our hearts and minds that we would love what you have to say and we would be shaped by it to live lives that honour and please the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, let me add what is uh, perhaps one of a long list of welcomes to the new year. Uh, I trust you enjoyed uh, welcoming the new year, farewelling 2010. Could have been done from a whole variety of places. Uh, I know some saw the year in, snuggled comfortably in bed. Who, who went to bed before the midnight fireworks? Yeah, thank you for your honesty. Um, what time? What time? How, how? About 11. Oh, you, you got close. Yeah, yeah not, not bad. Uh, at the other end, there were many who you know, saw the fireworks, spectacular display. How late did people stay up? We've we got a record. 7 a.m. 8 a.m. I know we're just making up numbers. Uh, yeah. Five past eight, yeah. I still haven't slept, in fact, since... Uh, yeah, yeah, we're all going for the competition now. I mean, it is an exciting time, isn't it? In the sense that it marks something special to say goodbye to one year and, and initiate a new one. Lots of people get into New Year's resolutions and they write their lists down. Perhaps you've got your list in your pocket now and, you know, at least two days in, you've kept them. Uh, according to the ABC, the five most popular uh, resolutions. One is losing weight, getting fit. Uh, secondly, quitting smoking or drinking. Uh, thirdly, getting out of debt and saving more money. Uh, fourthly, spending more time with family and friends. And lastly, getting organised. They sound familiar. You know, they're, they're kind of motherhood and apple pie. It's hard to disagree with any of those, isn't it? You know, we all want to save a bit more money, spend a bit more time with other families. Yeah. Uh, even if you're like me and you know, I, I don't do the New Year's resolution thing, I, I think too many years of attempting it and disillusionment means I don't bother with radical change. But you know, there is something about a new year that gives you a certain uh, a space and a certain permission uh, to think through a new year, to, to consider well, your dreams and your plans and your hopes. You know, there's something about you know, 2010's over and all the things I was signed up for, well, they've kind of finished. And so there's an opportunity to think, well, what's 2011 going to be? What will I sign up for? What's going to be new? What's going to be old? What will I do? There's, there's space, there's freedom to think about a new year. So over January, we're going to be seeking to reorient our lives by God's songbook, the Psalms. And so as you think over this new year, and particularly as we look at Psalm 97, there are three words that we need to remember. The Lord reigns. Three words. Uh, words that need to shape the way that you plan and dream and hope this year. The Lord reigns. 
three words that I hope as we, we get into Psalm 97, you see are words of delight and comfort. For the Lord reigns without rival, and he reigns with righteous integrity. Let's see how in the psalm he reigns without rival first. Uh, the, the psalm is, is a song of delight. It's, it's rejoicing in God, the divine warrior, who, who can't be opposed. So in verse 2, we, we see him there enthroned uh, in clouds and thick darkness, unapproachably there in the heavens. But then the, the psalm follows as he, he comes into the world. And so in verse 3, as he comes forth, he consumes his enemies. You know, president, king, pauper, it doesn't matter who you are, no foe has a chance against him. In verse 4, the earth trembles, all foes tremble before him. You know, not even mountains survive when the Lord comes. You know, we, at the moment, if, you, if you're watching the news, you'll have seen uh, the power of floods, the devastation that's been causing up in, in central Queensland. Uh, and there is something that you can see, it's devastating force. You know, trees can be picked up and, and float down what, it, what are normally roads, but buildings. I love it when my point is proved. There is something devastatingly powerful about creation, isn't there? Uh, But I tell you what, even if lightning strikes this building, I don't think it will, but should it? Uh, Yeah, yeah, now you're all worried. Don't worry, you're not going to be safer outside. Might as well stay here. Uh, The mountains aren't going to be shaken, are they? You know, the storm might rage out there. The floods in North Queensland, in central Queensland, uh, the storm's raging here in Kiribati. But mountains, you know, they last. Trees might be picked up and uprooted. But, you know, for centuries, you can kind of go, well, that mountain will always be there. It's a landmark that stands. But, but what happens when the Lord comes? Verse 5, they melt like wax. You know, the, the, the psalm is following the Lord when he comes in power. Uh, he comes from the heavens. He comes through the earth and there's no opposition there whether it's, it's foe of person or whether it's creation itself and then in verse 6 and 7 we're, we're taken back up to the heavens again see not even the, the false gods of the nations are rivals to the true and living God because you know, God's glory the Lord it fills both heaven and earth verse 9 for you O Lord are the most high over all the earth you are exalted far above all gods so this psalm is a psalm of joy in the fact that the Lord reigns without rival. He is the universal ruler. Whether or not people acknowledge him, he is in control. Verse 1 has the language of uh, the distant shores rejoicing. It's uh, that sense of the the, the remote outposts of humanity. You know those islands that kind of exist but you can't name? You know, if I gave you a map of the South Pacific and you kind of go, well, I know there's some islands somewhere, but I don't really know where. Those remote places, that's where the Lord is reigning and that's where everyone should rejoice. There is nowhere they shouldn't rejoice. Uh, you know, the, the peoples who see his glory in verse 6 are not the, the card-carrying, enthusiastic Jewish followers of God. It's the idea of the nations, the peoples, will see his glory. You know, God is the one who reigns, and he reigns without rival. And this claim is, is actually one that grates with our culture. Uh, an American uh, evangelist and pastor who... Uh, has had 20 years of experience asking people the question uh, what, what their biggest problem is with Christianity. He says one of the most frequent answers he receives is exclusivity. You know, that, that the Bible makes exclusive claims. There's only one God, there's only one way to access him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, at one particular public meeting he was at, there was, um, it was one of those panels 
uh, with a you know ecumenical representative, you know, so someone from Islam and, and Judaism and a Christian there. Um, what I suppose all could see as they were answering questions is they couldn't all be right. Certainly they could all be wrong, but they couldn't all be right. Uh, and there was one student, a university student in the audience, who uh, in frustration said, you know, we will never come to know peace on earth if religious leaders keep, keep on making exclusive claims. So that, that, that's the offence of exclusivity. And yet sadly the irony was lost on this particular student of his own exclusive claim that he had the right worldview and, and it couldn't tolerate anyone else. See, our culture does not like claims of exclusivity. But all religions aren't equal. They're not equally valid. Verse 7, idolaters, those who worship images, those who don't worship the true and living God are put to shame. For only the Lord reigns. Now this is a, a countercultural message. It's it's even counterintuitive. So we know that we don't control the floods and the wars. We, we, we concede that. We're willing to concede that we can't stop the rain when we want to get back to the car tonight. You know, that's beyond us. But, but within all of us, there's a kind of desire, isn't there, that if we just made the area small enough, we could be in control. And so we put little kind of fences in parts of our lives to, to control. So, so we stick, stick to the sports that we love. You know, hence... Uh, 80% of Australian men think that they're above average at sport. Maths, yeah. You know, or, or we focus in on the kind of friendships that, that we control, you know, or at least we can delight in and enjoy, and kind of go, these will go the way I expect. You know, they won't be difficult. And, you know, or, or we go into a career path that we know will suit our gifts, and we'll, we'll advance here, and we, we, we kind of have that element of control. Or, or 2011 comes and we make plans and dreams and of what we'll achieve and where we'll holiday and how we're going to improve in a new year. And, and when that little patch of our lives that we think we control gets disrupted, we get annoyed and we get, just get angry and, and we get frustrated or we get depressed. You know, whether it's the kind of injury that prevents the great sporting achievements or, or you know, the, the friend that lets us down or the holiday that gets rained out or... They all annoy us because they expose the myth of our control. You know, intuitively, we, we, we want to think, you know, I've got my area, I run this part, but that emperor has no clothes. Now, as Woody Allen quipped, uh, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. For it is the Lord who reigns. And we do well to listen to the Proverbs... Uh, Proverbs 16.1 says, To man belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. There's no, nothing wrong with planning and dreaming and hoping, but remember, you aren't in control. Only the Lord reigns. There are no rivals. Now, you need to hang on to those those three words of life and truth this year as you plan. You know, the Lord reigns. It's not you, it's not me. And he reigns without rival. Which can sound a little scary. You know, it can sound a little intimidating to, to think there is one being who can, 
can completely rule. It can sound like bad news. You know, we know that, that power corrupts. We know that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so there's that, that sense of, you know, to think that he, he rules all, even into the, the kind of details of, of your dreams and your plans, it can sound invasive and scary. And yet the psalmist is excited and joyous over it. Why? Well, as Megan and Nick prayed earlier, he knows the character of our God. That's the second big point. The Lord reigns in this psalm with integrity and righteousness. So the, the psalmist is thrilled in verse 1. The Lord reigns. What's he want everyone to do? Not be scared, but rejoice. Be excited because he knows that the Lord reigns with integrity. Uh, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, God is not safe, but he is good. You know, the, the, the pictures we get in this psalm describe the divine warrior, not just in terms of power, but in his holiness and goodness. So in verse 2 and 3, there, there, there are these images of uh, clouds and thick darkness, of fire. Uh, they're the pictures of what God was like when he was amongst the people, the people of Israel that he'd rescued and redeemed while they wandered in the wilderness before they went to the promised land. You know, that thick cloud and darkness that surrounded him in verse 2 is, is a, a symbol of his unapproachable holiness. That yes, he, he will come amongst you, but he is still so much other. He is perfect where we are imperfect. He is unapproachably holy. And, and that fire that comes out and consumes all ungodliness. Because he is a righteous and good God. Uh, it's not an arbitrary or, or fickle or capricious way he, he destroys, but if you look at the foundation of his throne, verse 2, you see that righteousness... And justice are the foundation of his throne. Righteousness and justice is his character, is the way he rules. Now, he is good. Now, he is righteous. He, he always acts rightly. He deals appropriately. And he doesn't crush the weak to preserve his power like perhaps the, the bully in the office might. And he doesn't make laws and judgments to, to serve himself like I suspect our politicians attempted to. You notice in verse 8 about his judgments. Everyone's glad about his judgments. You know, they are good. You know, good laws are, are life-giving and liberating. You know, we take for granted the, the goodness of laws because we live in, in what is really a, a stable and, and relatively just state. You know, we whinge sometimes about you know, the nanny state the way they invade our, our you know, individual freedoms. You know, Americans don't have to do their seatbelts up, but we do. You know, they interfere in government. You know, but think for a moment of life without a stable government. Think for a moment of life without good laws that, that create the space to actually live with others freely. You know, at the moment in the Ivory Coast, uh, they are on the brink of genocide because there is no stable government and there are no good judgments. You know, the, the psalmist is excited that the Lord reigns because he is just and his judgments are good. Okay, and that divine warrior spoken of in, in Psalm 97 is the same Lord who, who came and lived amongst us. Now, when Jesus was on earth, you know, his judgments were characterized by goodness, by righteousness. You know, so when he was confronted, you know, it was a Sabbath day and his disciples were hungry, you know, let's eat from the grain fields. Let's pick away. You know, when the sick were brought to him on the Sabbath, he healed them. He gave them life and did what was good. He, he makes just judgments, good judgments. You know, defying the rules of, of ceremonial cleanliness, he, he touched the lepers, he touched the dying, the sick. 
He made the, the unholy holy over and over again. The judgments of Jesus were judgments for good. Because his reign is one that brings life and life to the full. You know, living under the, the, the reign of God, the lordship of Jesus, it's not the, the sour aftertaste after you've had the kind of sweetness of salvation. No, no, living under his way is actually what makes being saved so sweet. Because it's good ways. Now, God is not safe, that's all right, he is good. As uh, we read from Philippians 2, now Jesus there with, with all the power of heaven, he didn't grip onto that, but he gave it up freely. And he served us and he came amongst us and he went all the way to the cross for sinners like you and me. Now, the Lord reigns and that is good news. Not safe, but he's good. And he reigns with integrity. Three implications I want to draw from, from Psalm 97 for us. First, that the Lord reigns and therefore idolaters are shamed. Verse 7. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. Yeah, the, the psalm is making fun of you know, those little statues, saying, you know, why don't you worship him, bow down to him. Uh, but really, who, the, the ones who end up being mocked are those who worship false gods, those who bow down to those idols. They're the most mocked because their false belief gets shown up and they are disgraced. Now, the Bible has a really rich understanding of idolatry and, and how our hearts work to manufacture idols. It's not as simple as you know, we make little statues and think that they're a god. No, no, no. In Romans 1, it talks about how, how humanity sees the truth of God, but we, we squash it down and suppress it. Uh, and instead of worshipping the, the good creator who gives us good things, uh, we take his creation and worship it. You know, that, that's what our hearts are inclined to do, to, to take good things and make them ultimate. You know, that's the heart of idolatry. You know, the Bible calls greed idolatry because what are we doing? We're taking the goodness of money. Money's really good, useful for all sorts of wonderful things. Uh, but we, we take it and we make that good thing the ultimate and we, we put our trust and our devotion and our love upon it. Or, or we might do it with our reputation. Or we might do it with our family. Or we might do it with our friends. You know, all good things that our hearts distort from just being creation and treat it like a creator. And because the Lord reigns, ultimately any attempt to do that will bring us to shame. It will shame us. Uh, it will shame us because any idol will fail to deliver what it promises. If you call it an idol. If you call it a God. It can't deliver. You know, if, if, if nothing else, the, the global financial crisis taught us that, that boasting in idols is hollow talk. It lets us down. And it shames us even more because it shows we've got cheap taste if we go after idols. It shows we've got low ambition. You know, but rather than the, the glorious creator, we're settling for creation and making it up as though it is our creator. We've got cheap taste. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it so helpfully. You know, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now, that's the folly of idolatry. Now, as, as you plan, as you dream for this year, 
Now, remember, idolatry will only lead to shame. Now, the advice of one John is, dear children, keep yourself from idols. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, avoid all Thai and Indian restaurants because they'll have a little statue in the corner. No, no, no. It's keep yourself from taking the good things and making them ultimate. Guard yourself. Protect yourself from that. Maybe uh, this is how we can be helping one another. How is it that in in 2011 you're going to make sure that you use the good things you have been given by God for his service rather than treating them as though they're God? Well, maybe by helping each other, keeping each other accountable. Uh, A Christian friend uh, played professional football in, uh, in the NRL a lot of guys who go into professional sport, like, like any success, uh, get seduced by it. It becomes an idol. He kept it in check by making sure that, that he used this good thing to serve God. So when he got invited to uh, speak at things, he had friends who would question him, why did he accept that one and not that opportunity? You know, was it because he thought he was serving God or was it because he was just kind of cultivating a little idol in his heart? Now, knowing that idolatry will ultimately shame you, maybe this year, find one person you can be honest with. One person who will be honest about what you're doing with the good things in your life and whether you're using them for God's service or whether you've become a servant of theirs. Second implication. The Lord reigns, and so lovers of the Lord hate evil. Verse 10. Let those who love the Lord hate evil. For he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Quite literally, the, the opening of verse 10 is, lovers of the Lord hate evil. Now, it's a simple, absolute statement. Now, there's no qualification for the evil we hate. We hate evil if you love the Lord. It makes sense, doesn't it? That, that if you love the Lord, you share his passions. Hate is a passionate language. You, you buy into the things he hates. He hates evil enough that he might send his son into the world to die on a cross to destroy it. Now, the Lord hates evil, and we who love the Lord hate evil too. You know, yes, it starts with that, that kind of hating the evil within. You know, that, that sin that you know, is within us, and, and as his spirit works in us, we do develop that kind of hate, but it's more than that. And you know, the measure of real hatred is, is that you hate it across the board. You hate it universally. You know, whenever you see it, you hate it. You know, so the violence on the nightly news, even though it doesn't affect you, you, know, you, you want it to end. You know, and, the, and the headlines on the, you know, the gossip magazines about, yes, another celebrity, their marriage has fallen apart because of adultery, and rather than it entertain you, it grieves you. Now, lovers of the Lord hate evil. And we hate it with a, with a comfort that he will guard us. There's a strange logical connection in verse 10. You know, let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones. You're thinking, shouldn't it say, you know, let those who love the Lord hate evil uh, because he really doesn't like it? No, no, no. It goes on to say, because he guards. What's the connection? Well, if we, if we choose to hate evil in this world, it will be costly. And the comfort is he will guard us as we do it. Uh, reading Psalm 97 this week, I, I found myself asking that question of, how much do I love the Lord and does it transfer into hating evil? Uh, John Richmond was a, uh, he's a young, successful lawyer. Uh, he, he heard about the work of the International Justice Mission. Uh, if you've not heard of them, they, 
uh, I suppose, an ongoing activity. They're, they're trying to end all forms of slavery around the world, particularly in the third world countries. Uh, he noticed they needed a lawyer. Uh, and so he left his comfortable job uh, and he moved with his young family over to a third world country. Uh, and he took up his work and started taking on violent slaveholders. Started taking them to the courts. Now, his decision was not safe. Uh, and for all around, it didn't look very smart. You know, what, what struck me most about his story is the responses he got from colleagues when he said, this is what I'm planning to do. Uh, he got comments like, you know, you'll have no future. Uh, you'll imperil your family. Uh, perhaps the most vivid was, you're going to walk like a fool into a buzzsaw. Now, that, that decision to be brave rather than smart is often mocked by those who do what's safe and sensible. You know, those who make the decision to have a future and, and a good, successful one and, and who keep their families comfortable. And you know, the decision to hate evil is costly. But Psalm 97 says God guards the lives of his faithful ones. That's the comfort. It's the Lord who reigns and therefore we hate evil, all of it. You know, I felt challenged uh, rereading this book from the International Justice Mission about... Now, whether it is that my love for the Lord overflows to hate all evil, now, whether I'm living safe or brave. Now, as you plan 2011, now, what, what evil, not just the sin within you, what evil out there will you oppose? Third and final implication, the Lord reigns, so rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. The, the, the tone of this psalm is actually one of joy. Uh, the, the opening line says the whole earth should be rejoicing, that the nation should be glad because God is in control. Uh, in verse 8, we saw how you know, people are excited about his judgments. And the climax of, of verse 12, it's kind of like a bracket, 1 and 12 act as brackets. We return to joy. Uh, verse 12, rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous. You know, that is, you who relate rightly to God. You should rejoice in the Lord and praise his holy name. You know, it, it links um, our joy in God and praise or thanks to him. You know, it, it's kind of like fruit that, that comes naturally from a tree, isn't it? That, that if you rejoice in something, the natural outflow of it is that you are thankful and you praise, you talk about it. Uh, you know that with all your kind of passions in life, you, you know, if you're excited about something, you tell people. Uh, you know, the last time, you know, perhaps think about the last conversation you had with a, with a first-time grandparent. I reckon they're always the, the ultimate example of you know, joy that flows into thanks and praise. You know, you meet a first-time grandparent and, you know, within five minutes they've pulled out the photo album they just happen to be carrying of their grandchild and kind of taking you through. This is the first steps and all that. That's a natural thing, isn't it? That when we are rejoicing, we praise and give thanks. And if we grasp that God rules everything with righteousness and justice, then we can rejoice. In verse 11, there's this there's this hint of a coming dawn, that, that the righteous uh, rule of God is not yet seen by all. Is it, There's a kind of future sense of this psalm. Uh, but those who are already righteous, already have a right relationship with him, can start rejoicing now. And not in that sense of you know, kind of walking around with a, with a, with a fake smile. You know, not, not this kind of pretense. But as we plan and dream in the year to come, we, we do it with joy. And we do it with praise. We do it with a confidence that he is in control and so we don't need to worry. We can instead rejoice. 
1653, there was a, a guy called Whitlock. Um, he was uh, uh, Cromwell's envoy to Sweden. If you don't know about English history, there was a while when England was a republic. Uh, civil war was going on. Uh, Cromwell was the, uh, yeah, the Lord Protector at the time. This guy, Whitlock, was his representative uh, going off to Sweden. And not surprisingly, you know, there were a lot of pressures on him. National flares were, were worrying him. He, he couldn't sleep. Uh, his servant asked him, Pray, sir, do you think God governed the world very well before you came into it? Undoubtedly. Pray, sir, do you think that he will govern it quite as well when you are gone out of it? Certainly. Then, pray, sir, excuse me, but do you not think you may trust him to govern it quite as well as long as you live? Obviously, there was no answer to that. He soon fell asleep. That is the joy of one who knows the Lord reigns. He reigned before you were born. He'll keep reigning when you are gone. He can do it quite well, even with you around. And this is the joy we can share. So I don't know what your, your dreams and hopes and plans are for 2011, and you've got no idea which ones are actually going to happen. But this we know. The Lord reigns. And let the world rejoice. Let's pray. Now, Lord and Father, we thank you that you are a great, mighty and powerful God. We praise you that your judgments are just and good. And we praise you that you have no rival. Father, we thank you that you reign and ask that that would shape us. It would shape us in this coming day and coming weeks and coming year, that we would live as people who know you reign, that we would live free from idols that might shame us, that we would live hating the evil that you so despise, that we would live as people of joy, knowing that you rule over all. Uh, we ask, Father, that our lives would be so clearly marked by that confidence that others might know that you reign and that they too might rejoice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.